This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, Decode DC, The Melissa Harris Perry Show, and Arts and Ideas from the BBC. There is a really great article on Quartz about the impact of mass incarceration on crime. And remember that the United States has one of the highest incarceration rates in the world, rivaled by the likes of countries such as North Korea. So there's this idea that if you take past and would-be future criminals off of the street, you increase safety, you decrease crime. Pretty logical, right? Turns out it's not really that logical, and, and the argument is actually twofold. So let's take a look at each piece in turn. Argument one for incarceration is you reduce crime by taking criminals off of the street so that they don't then go out and commit more crimes. And the second part of the argument is by incarcerating a lot of people for a long time, you discourage would-be criminals from committing crime. Sort of like, I guess, the deterrent effect, Lewis, that we hear about sometimes with talks about the death penalty. Uh, yes, which, uh, of course, we know is not a deterrent. And as it turns out, neither of these arguments are true when it comes to the impact of mass incarceration on crime reduction. There's a very good new paper from the University of Michigan economics professor Michael Mueller-Smith, and it measures how much does putting criminals in prison reduce crime? And he looked at records from Harris County, Texas, from the period ranging from 1980 to 2009, and he observed that in Harris County, people charged with similar crimes received very different sentences depending on which judge randomly was assigned their case. So Muller-Smith then tracked what happened to each of these prisoners, and he estimated that each year in prison, actually increased the odds that a prisoner would reoffend by 5.6% per quarter spent in prison. Uh, a quarter, of course, uh, three months. Even people who went to prison for lesser crimes ended up committing more serious offenses subsequently the more time they spent in prison. So any benefit was the con conclusion from Muller-Smith. Any benefit from taking criminals out of the general population was more than offset by the increase in crime from turning small offenders into career criminals. Now, there's another completely common sense element to this thing, which is the longer you're in prison, the more difficult it is to find so-called honest work when you leave prison, because it's more difficult to adjust. You'll be more behind socially, technologically, and thus it is just more likely, Lewis, that the longer you're in prison, the fewer options you'll have other than turning to crime, often more serious crimes than the ones that got you in prison to begin with. Yeah, and I mean, because of the situation in this country, I think we should have more uh, more social programs to help with that. But David, the answer is simple. If you're going to send someone to prison, it's all life sentences from here on out. Exactly. The way to prevent this is just by giving everybody a life sentence, no matter what it is. So forget about 20 years for marijuana possession. Let's up that even more. Prison destroys your earnings potential. Being a convicted felon disqualifies you from many jobs, from living in certain places, voting. And Muller-Smith estimates that each year in prison reduces the odds of post-release employment 
by 24% and of course increases the odds that you will live on public assistance. Talk about fiscal conservatism. It is expensive to have prisoners in prison, but it's also expensive after they get out because it increases the odds that those prisoners will end up receiving welfare benefits of various kinds. There is nothing fiscally conservative about this mass incarceration policy of the U.S., and there is really no good crime reduction argument to be made either. I remember us talking about the cost of uh, incarcerating someone for a year, and I believe it was up to around the price of a year at, a, at an Ivy League school, was it not? It was similar in many cases, yeah. And then let's talk a little bit about the other argument, which is that these prison, this incarceration policy uh, functions as a sort of deterrent, right? And Mueller-Smith ran the numbers and estimates that a one-year prison sentence would only be worth it in terms of how much it costs and foregone economic potential if it deterred at least 0.4 rapes, 2.2 assaults, 2.5 robberies, 62 larcenies, or prevented 4.8 people from uh, becoming habitual drug users. So you could say, we'll take the cost of the incarceration. Here's how much crime would have to be deterred as a result of that cost in order to make sense. There is little evidence that there is any anywhere close to the deterrent effect that would be necessary here. And common sense also tells us a lot here. The possibility of a longer prison sentence is really too far away to pose as a deterrent. And number two, even after you turn 18, there's still uncertainty about the length of prison sentences. I know we have mandatory minimums for repeat offenders and, and this type of thing. But broadly speaking, there is not enough of an incentive to just say, well, I might get caught and I might be prosecuted, and I might be convicted, and here's the range of sentences I might get. It's just not enough of a deterrent, unless you want to do what Lewis said, which is it's a life sentence for any petty crime, which is absurd. And you know what? I'm sure the, the private prison industry would love to do that. I think <laughs> uh, eliminating private prisons is an important step here. More police does have an impact on reducing crime. Longer sentences does not have an impact on reducing crime because of how risk is perceived. If you see much more of a police presence, that is a direct impact on making you less likely to commit crimes. The idea that very far down the line you might end up with a long prison sentence does not seem to deter people from committing crime. do family members have to pay in order to support someone who's been convicted of a crime and imprisoned as a result of that? Well, recently there was a study looking into the costs of having an imprisoned family member. And some of the costs are so outrageous that families have to either refinance their homes or take out huge loans in order to make ends meet. Now, according to this study that was reported by uh, Think Progress, more than two-thirds of respondents said that their family's financial stability was damaged when a member was incarcerated. Two out of three families had trouble meeting basic needs thanks to their loved one's conviction and incarceration, include, including half who struggled to afford food 
and another 48% who had trouble paying for housing. Now, I should note that this was a study done by Forward Together, the Ella Baker uh, Center for Human Rights, and also the Research Action Design. As I look at this story, there's a lot of really interesting things that come out of it. Uh, number one, the reverberating consequences and costs of our penal system overall. And we incarcerate more per capita than any other country. And, um, and so, and we do it oftentimes for ridiculous reasons, including the war on drugs, which feeds so much of our prison population. So it's not just the cost the war on drugs has, it's the cost of imprisoning uh, people. But it's not just the cost of imprisoning people, as this study shows you, that then affects their family throughout in at least four substantial ways. Absolutely. So let me tell you exactly how it impacts them. So the average debt they incurred for court fees and fines alone is an average about $13,607, which would eat up nearly all of the 16000 annual income earned by a family of two living at the poverty line. Now, keep in mind that those convicted of crimes and incarcerated are more likely to come from a lower socioeconomic status. Because so, if you're rich, you're probably going to get away with it. You're, yeah, you're either going to get away with it or... No, you have the resource to be, kidding aside, you have the resource to be able to hire a significant attorney or legal team. Uh, yes, that would increase your percentages of being acquitted, right? Yes. But you can also bear that cost and have it not destroy your standard of living, mm -hmm. right? Whereas even if you're not at the poverty line, $13,607 is a ton of money for almost any family in America that's... Now, forget the poor, also middle class. That's the devastating consequences. Oftentimes, you got to take out loans. you got to get us another job to be able to do that. And that's just the first leg. Right. Now, also, keep in mind, John Oliver did a really great um, segment on this. He was talking about what a joke um, public defenders have become. Not, not the defenders themselves, but the whole notion of them, because they're so underpaid and they're so overworked that oftentimes they are not as reliable as what a rich person can do with his money, right? A rich person can hire a great attorney who would actually not be overworked, would actually fight for them and get them off on certain crimes. Public defenders, unfortunately, don't have the same resources as other attorneys. When you look at how much money they make, it's crazy. These people went to law school. They went through all the hard work, and a lot of them worked their way up to like $40,000 a year. Yeah, I mean... Look, for a lot of uh, colleges now, for a lot of law schools, that's one year of law school. I mean, you go to law school for three years, you're going to be saddled with all this debt, and then you're going to become a public defender, not be able to pay it off. And also, public defenders are incentivized to settle. Plea, plea, yes. plea. Just by the nature of their job, let alone in some areas where they're literally financially incentivized. Exactly. So, uh, you know, you really want to be at the hands of someone who has all the incentive in the world, as good an intention as they might have, to make sure you say, yes, I'm guilty of something, even if you didn't do it? I know. It's crazy. So to cover the cost of conviction, 20% of families took out a loan while 9% had their wages garnished or tax refunds withheld to make payments. More than a third had to go into debt to pay for phone calls and visits alone. Now, keep in mind, the phone calls cost an insane amount of money. Um, a lot of phone companies will charge a ton of money, like, let's say $4 a minute, right, which families can't afford. That's a lot of money. And then on top of that, inmates will usually do collect calls in order to communicate with their family members, and that's also very expensive. Um, and in terms of visits, a lot of these prisons are four hours away if you're lucky, and so you have to pay a lot of money in terms of gas just to get there. 
Um, also, let me give you some more information about this. About half of the family members experience negative health, impact, health impacts related to the incarceration of their loved one, including post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, nightmares, and hopelessness. So then you got to deal with some medical costs as well. 20% missed or lost employment opportunities when trying to support an incarcerated family member. 10% of the respondents said young members of the family couldn't attend high school or go to college. Now, some people might look at this and say, well, tough nuggets, right? This person was convicted of a crime, they were imprisoned, and this is just what happens. But also keep in mind that we have this justice system that goes after low-level nonviolent offenders, right? People who are caught with possession of drugs. And so you get caught with some marijuana and all of a sudden you're incarcerated as a result of that. And that has a ripple effect on your entire family. Now people are dealing with, you know, health costs that are related to your incarceration. They're taking out loans. They're going into debt. It's a disaster. So four layers here to summarize. The trial costs you a ton of money. The person going to prison uh, causes that family to lose income because he's not bringing in income anymore. And uh, about half the prisoners uh, used to make at least half of the income for their family. So that's a huge, heavy blow to deal with. Third of all, you've got the visitation rights and the phone uh, bill that, that Anna's talking about. The averages are normally you get charged about four cents if you're in the outside world, right, uh, per minute. Um, in prison, the average is a dollar twenty-two. Look at the scale difference: four cents, dollar twenty-two, right? So that, and then the families have to pay that. Driving all the way, all these different costs that are involved. And then finally, it, not only the health effects that Anna mentioned, but in order to drive four hours each way to a prison, sometimes you got to take a day off from work. More lost income, right? And it piles on and on and on. So again, the guy's a murderer or rapist. You don't shed a tear. I'm right there with you, right? And so that's the, that he shouldn't have done that and put those costs on his own family, right? Um, on the other hand, if we're unjustly imprisoning hundreds of thousands of perhaps millions of people, you know, just like we did in the past, if we're having a beer in the past and now for having a joint, right? And you add all those costs onto the burden of society, then you go, wait a minute, what are we doing to ourselves? Why are we doing this? So understand the full ramifications and the full costs of this silly, silly war on drugs. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Mark Maurer spends a lot of time in prisons. 
It's Mark with a C, Maurer, M-A-U-E-R. I'm the executive director of the Sentencing Project, and we've been around for almost 30 years working for a better justice system. And for most of those 30 years, Mark Maurer has been working mostly with other progressively-minded folks until one day five years ago. I received a dinner invitation to come and talk in a small group about problems in the prison system, why there are too many people in prison, what we could do about it, and the invitation came from Newt Gingrich. I don't think of myself as the kind of person who gets invited to dinner by Newt Gingrich very often, so I thought this was intriguing. and. And I went to the dinner, and there were about 25 people there, and included, in addition to Gingrich, uh, high-ranking Republican conservatives, uh, Grover Norquist, Michael Steele, at the time was head of the Republican National Committee, a handful of us more liberal types, and mostly very high-ranking conservatives. And over a three-hour dinner, we had a very engaging conversation about why there were so many people in prison, what was the role of the federal government, state and local, um, what kind of drug offenders are being held in prison, the racial dynamics of incarceration. It was a very intriguing moment, and you know, it's quite clear to me that there was real interest on, on their part, on the conservative part of things, and that's continued and expanded to this day. So, you know, very important moment, I think. And it isn't just Mark Maurer who sees the change. In just a couple of decades, we seem to have gone from a nation of this. Now, those who commit crimes should be punished. And those who commit repeated violent crimes should be told. When you commit a third violent crime, you will be put away and put away for good. Three strikes and you are out. To a nation of this. We need to lower long mandatory minimum sentences or get rid of them entirely. Give judges some discretion around nonviolent crimes. I personally think judges should get more discretion. Most of the judges, Republican and Democrat, are balking at this. They're saying, give us discretion. Prison reform seems to be having its moment. Welcome to Decode DC. I'm your guest host, Emily Kopp, a reporter with Federal News Radio in Washington. It's not often you get President Obama and Rand Paul to agree on anything, but there seems to be pretty strong agreement that America's prison system is a disaster. While crime has been dropping for the past two decades, long mandatory sentences brought on by a tough-on-crime attitude have swelled the prison population. More than 2 million Americans are behind bars. According to the Sentencing Project, that's a 500% increase over the last 40 years. And when you look at who is in prison, Mark Maurer says, you see disproportionately people of color and the poor. Uh, About three-quarters of them have a history of substance abuse. One of every six has a history of mental illness. Uh, Their educational attainment is generally very poor. Uh, If you look at women in prison, half of them have been physically or sexually abused. You know, we could go on and on. It's a picture of sort of socioeconomic challenges, dysfunctional communities, lack of resources. Um, You know, it's a very devastating portrait of, you know, what happens to people at the bottom of American society. 
Keeping those people behind bars costs a lot of money. The federal government spent nearly seven billion dollars in 2013. There's no shortage of proposals for reform from Congress, the White House, and others. Today on Decode DC, our 100th episode, we ask the question: What does prison reform mean to politicians who have taken up the cause lately, and activists like Mark Mauer who've been fighting for it for decades? Could it be the one thing that Democrats and Republicans can come together on?、Uh, I was told when I came into office that I could expect to build two new prisons because we were going to need five thousand more prison beds in a five-year period, and that was going to cost us about two hundred and sixty-four million dollars. Meet Nathan Deal, the Republican governor of Georgia. When he took office in 2011, Georgia had a record high number of prisoners. It was paying more than ever to keep those people behind bars. What's worse, recidivism—the rate at which former inmates relapsed into crime—was also at an all-time high. So anyone who thought that the lock 'em up, throw away the key、uh, process was working were simply not looking at the facts on the ground. So. I thought that that was one of the issues that needed to be looked at. It didn't hurt that、uh, my son was a superior court judge in North Georgia and was running a drug court in the judicial circuit where he was elected to serve.、Uh, he made me very well aware of the success that he was seeing in that program on a local level, and I knew that there were others in the state just like him. Who had very successful alternative、uh, courts, and that this was something that we thought—I thought at least—could、uh, have statewide application. Like most politicians, Governor Deal's vision of prison reform focuses mostly on non-violent, non-serious, non-sex offenders—the ones you're most likely to feel sorry for and least likely fear. It's a mix of modifying mandatory sentences, giving inmates more access to education. Overhauling the juvenile justice system and other changes to help ex-cons transition back to society, and Deal is pretty pleased with the impact on Georgia's prison system. Well, it's becoming smaller for one thing. <laughs> We have about three thousand less people in our state prisons system now, even though our population has grown significantly. For the state as a whole, our prison population has dropped by three thousand since I became governor in two thousand and eleven. I think that's a good sign. Governor Deal says the state is also trying to change the way employers see job candidates with criminal records. Like 17 other states, Georgia has banned the box. This means that when somebody is filling out an application for a job, if that little box says "Have you ever been convicted of a felony?" and they check the box,、uh, most human resource directors don't let that application get very far from their desk, and that's the end of most opportunities to apply for a job. But in Georgia, if you apply for a low-security state job, you don't have to answer questions about your criminal history. That means former convicts may just get a face-to-face -face interview. Governor Deal says it's the fair thing to do. Many people said, "Well, as a Republican governor, that's not a Republican issue." Well, <laughs> these are the kinds of things that don't necessarily break themselves down along political party lines. Uh, these are people problems, and、uh, we were unbelievably successful. So the result has been that we are seeing our prison population drop. We have not built 
two more prisons. We have actually converted some into transition centers, and we have saved that money and put it into the areas where it is working most effectively. I think Georgia is uh, showing some very forward thinking about how to address these issues. Uh, it's been very impressive. They've got this is Mark Maurer again from the Sentencing Project. Maurer and other criminal justice reform advocates welcome the bipartisan interest from all corners of government. But with more than two million people in federal and state prisons and jails, they want to see action. Well, I think at the very least we should cut those figures in half within, say, 10 or 15 years or so. That means letting more than a million inmates go free. Who would they be? Even if you released all the people serving time for nonviolent offenses, you wouldn't reach a million. Most inmates are in state prisons. More than half of them have been convicted of violent offenses. Things like murder, rape, kidnapping. So Mark Maurer says there's only so far we can cut the prison population without considering some of those offenders. You know, there are many people who say, let's deal with the nonviolent drug offenders, get them out of prison, that'll have a big impact. Then it would have a big impact, but, you know, the 2.2 million people behind bars, if we, let's say, legalize drugs tomorrow, let every drug offender out of prison and jail, we'd only get it down to about 1.7 million people still locked up. So we would still have uh, a situation of mass incarceration. So, yes, I think the variety of ways we could reduce the number of Drug offenders from prison don't need to be there, but we have to also look at more serious offenders, how long they're spending in prison in particular, if we want to achieve a a really substantial effect. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because that is not what you hear from all these people, like the senators and congresspeople who are putting forth legislation now, or President Obama, no one's talking about that. Well, that's basically correct. And, you know, it's it's understandable politically. Uh, you know, you want to go after what we might think of as the low-hanging fruit. I mean, not that any criminal justice form is easy by any means, but, you know, most people in the public can recognize the injustice of taking a low-level drug seller, putting away for 10 or 20 years, that doesn't do anybody any good. We make these distinctions. We sometimes say so-and-so is a violent offender, so-and-so is a nonviolent offender. You know, very often crime is not so rational, not so organized by type. So, you know, crime disproportionately takes place among young people, kids getting together, and kids do stupid things. So one night they go out and steal a car because there's a car sitting there with the keys in. Another night they see somebody leave their house and they decide to break in and get a TV or something like that. Or they get drunk and they get into a fight in the streets and now they're a violent offender. So it's not so simple to just define them that way, which also means, you know, when we look at people in the courtroom or in prison, if we want to think about what's a constructive way to respond to the crime they've committed, we have to take an individualized look. We can't just say, oh, for violent offenders we do this, for nonviolent offenders we do that. That's not going to get us very far. Family in the Age of Mass Incarceration is writer Ta-Nehisi Coates' latest treatise for The Atlantic magazine on the cost of institutionalized white supremacy for generations of African-American people. 
Coates reaches back to the earliest days of American history to tie mass incarceration as a system of control to centuries-old perceptions of African Americans as subhuman and pathologically criminal. As Coates writes of U.S. policy informed by these perceptions, quote, one does not build a safety net for a race of predators. One builds a cage. Coates traces the thread of this notion that African Americans are a problem in need of social control instead of social support through the last five decades of criminal justice policy. At its end, millions of people, disproportionate number of them, African American, behind bars, comprising the planet's biggest population of prisoners. At its beginning, a 1965 government report that diagnosed the persistent problems in the African American community as originating in its heart, the black family. The Negro Family, the Case for National Action, was compiled in 1965 by Daniel Patrick Moynihan during his time as an advisor to President Richard Nixon. In Moynihan's view, African-American families, broken under the weight of centuries of racial oppression, suffered from a structural deformity that denied black men their rightful place as heads of households and that mired their race in a culture of pathology. He writes in the report, in essence, the Negro community has been forced into a matriarchal structure, which, because it is so out of line with the rest of American society, seriously retards the progress of the group as a whole and imposes a crushing burden on the Negro male and, in consequence, on a great many Negro women as well. While Moynihan believed there was a space for government policy to address myriad social and economic problems faced by impoverished African Americans, Coates argues that ultimately the state invested in mass incarceration as its solution to them all. Coates finds strains of Moynihan's beliefs even in President Obama's rhetoric about African American families and underlining, underlying the policies of President Clinton, who presided over a larger increase in the prison population than any previous president. He says of the consequences that, quote, there's very little evidence that it brought down crime and abundant evidence that it hindered employment for black men and accelerated the kind of family breakdown that Clinton and Moynihan both lamented. In the final paragraphs of the piece, Coates begins to offer his take on what meaningful systemic reform might look like, with the suggestion that his latest story is in fact a continuation of his original argument in his 2014 piece, The Case for Reparations. Coates writes, the experience of mass incarceration, the warehousing and deprivation of whole swaths of our country, the transformation of that deprivation into wealth transmitted through government jobs and private investment, the pursuit of the war on drugs on nakedly racist grounds have only intensified the ancient American dilemma's white-hot core, the problem of past unequal treatment, the difficulty of damages, and the question of reparations. Tanahasi Coates joins me now live from Paris, France. Nice to have you. Thanks for having me, Melissa. And I'm sorry, actually, Moynihan Report is not under Nixon. It's, it's actually under Johnson. I, I got that wrong as I was saying it there. But I, I'm interested in, in why yeah. begin with the Moynihan Report for understanding how we should construct this kind of intersection between race and criminality. Well, that was one of the last moments where somebody looked at the myriad problems in the African-American community and suggested a, a, a broad swath of benevolent investments uh, to deal with them. Uh, now, unfortunately, the, the suggestion of those investments are not in the report. 
you know, and that was a political calculation made by Moynihan himself. Uh, he decided not to. It wasn't like he didn't know what to do. He knew very much what to do. And one of the things that he talked about doing was unequal treatment, you know, as, as I argue at the end of the piece, in fact, reparations to make up for past unequal treatment. As he put it, he, he had a suite of solutions, you know, increased access to birth control, uh, really uh, wild ideas like uh, Saturday postal service to increase employment for, for black men. But I think the reasons why the country did not adopt uh, that kind of benevolent investment and instead adopted malevolent investment to deal with other uh, problems in the African-American community actually are within the career of Moynihan himself and within the report, unfortunately. So I want to push a little bit on, on this choice um, to, to use Moynihan primarily to think about incarceration and especially around black men's bodies. Um, part of what you don't spend a lot of time doing in the piece is teasing out the extraordinary influence of this report on gendered notions of the American social welfare policy. Um, oh, Ta-Nehisi is gone. He's bye-bye. He's went away from... Oh, are no, you still here. there? Okay, I'm good, here. great. I'm here. Sorry, good. I'm sorry, we lost you for Hello, a second there. But talk to, me a little bit about, talk to me a little bit about the gender piece. Well, I mean, one of the, you know, probably the most wrong uh, aspect of it. Well, so I would split this into two things. I think, you know, the whole lens of looking at the problems in the African-American community through the notion of family and strictly through the notion of family, the idea that that's the best way to understand them is, is severely limited. Uh, I think it doesn't take into account the fact of community, that families live around other families, that policy that is directed towards neighborhoods has effects. Uh, and you can't just address that by having a father and a mother in a home. Um, I don't think that's, that's sufficient. Uh, in addition to that, I, you know, one, one of the reasons why I think that report, you know, ultimately, you know, uh, failed you know, for mustering benevolent investment is that it trafficked in very uh, old ideas within the field of sociology at that time about what black families were. This notion of a uh, matriarchy, which is not, you know, merely the notion that black, you know, women are, you know, that, that, that black women occupy space in single family households, but that they somehow are part of the problem. Uh, the notion that, you know, because, you know, a black woman is going out working a job and also being a mother to her kids, that that actually is part of the problem. And Moynihan, in some of his memos, uh, pushes much further than he does. In, in the report and go so far as to say if we have to push black women out of jobs uh, to employ black men we should do that you know talking about uh, GIs coming home from Vietnam saying the first thing he would do is get them a, 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 a list of real estate listings and a wife who looked like Diane Carroll I, I think that sort of um, uh, rendering of black families indicates you know uh, first of all that he can't see black women but that you can't actually see black communities and black uh, families as fully uh, functioning units in which human beings actually occupy. And I actually think that kind of dehumanization is part of the story for why we ended up with an investment through incarceration and not through the kind of solutions that he wanted. Well, so, so let's go to that dehumanizing piece for, uh, for a moment. You write, uh, in part, when the doors finally close and one finds oneself facing banishment to the carceral state, the years, the walls, the rules, the guards, the inmates' reactions vary. Some experience an intense, sickening feeling, others a strong desire to sleep, visions of suicide, a deep shame, a rage directed towards guards and other inmates, utter disbelief. For those who believe that the criminal justice system is locking up the bad guys, why should they care that that's how people experience it? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the term bad guy necessarily means. I mean, the criminal justice system is certainly locking up people uh, who have committed acts of violence. That seems to be uh, definitely true. The, the, the question for me is we had uh, a serious, a dramatic, dramatic increase uh, in the population of, of, of our jails and prisons. The question is, does the crime wave that we experienced in the late 60s, into the 70s, through the early 90s, does it, does it actually explain that? And the fact of the matter is when we look at this internationally and we, we look at other countries, we find that other countries had a, a similar crime rise and a, and a similar uh, fall. Only the United States of America adopted a policy of mass incarceration. And one of the tasks I set out with this piece was to understand why did it do that. And my argument is just to take this back to the report. <laughs> when you have these you know, dehumanizing notions of people already, it makes it a lot easier to, to, to do certain things. You know, I, the, the, you know in, in the article, I go beyond just the report in terms of the things yeah. Moynihan said. You know, when you get into, say, the Nixon White House and he's sending memos saying effectively that the black middle class is using uh, lower class blacks uh, to exploit things from white people, that lower class backs are becoming increasingly violent, that they're extraordinarily self-damaging. It, it becomes very, very easy to pass policy that locks people up. When you think about folks, that these, these folks are not human. They're extraordinarily self-damaging in Moynihan's own words. And, you know, I, I say all this noting that I think Moynihan was benevolent. That's the benevolent <laughs> side of things. That's not mm -hmm. the malevolent side. That's the, right. you know, people in their heart who are trying to help you. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Recently, President Barack Obama commuted the sentences of 46 nonviolent federal drug offenders, which means that they were free from their sentences in prison. Well, Vice recently wrote about a very little-known reform that happened within our justice system that actually does free thousands of nonviolent drug offenders within the federal system. And it's uh, a new reform referred to as Drugs Minus Two. Let me give you some more information about this. Now, currently, there are more than 95,000 federal prisoners serving years, sometimes decades, for drug crimes. Almost 2,000 are serving life sentences without parole, and that's according to the ACLU. Okay. Now, the lesser-known policy uh, that Vice is writing about it was enacted back in 2014 uh, with far less fanfare. It'll affect 1,000 times the number of people as Obama's commutations. Colloquially known as drugs minus two, the amendment to the U.S. Sentencing Commission's guidelines could reduce the sentences of as many as 46,000 people. Okay, So basically what they're going to do is 
sort of do away with mandatory minimums, which a lot of drug offenders throughout the country are dealing with right now. So that takes the discretion away from a judge, right? So a judge might deem someone guilty but might want to give them a, a lesser sentence, but he or she is unable to do so because there's a mandatory minimum. In one case, there was a 21-year-old by the name of Robert Ship who was caught selling crack, and he got a life sentence for selling crack. Okay, and the judge basically told him, "Look, I don't agree with the sentence. It's crazy, but this is the mandatory minimum. You're screwed." So that's how our system works right now. And thankfully, uh, this drugs minus two reform is supposed to mitigate the consequences of that. You know, when I was younger, uh, I grew up in a suburb where we didn't have issues like this. So if you told me life sentence for a crack dealer, I, I was brainwashed into thinking like, "Oh my God, a crack dealer sounds so dangerous." Well, you know, he's in infecting the kids of a new generation with poison and, and involved in a very dangerous business. And so, of course, you should get a life sentence. Now I'm an adult, okay? It's time to put childish things aside. So in reality, what happens is um, in some place in the country, you have an industry that is structured around selling drugs, right? Because there's demand for the drugs, not just by, if you, let's say it's a, uh, inner city, right? Not just by the people in the inner city, but people who drive in to get the drugs from the suburbs, other parts of the city, etc. There's this enormous demand for it. And so when somebody rises up to uh, service that demand, as happens in every case when you do this, whether it's prohibition or otherwise, uh, then well, that's totally natural. They, so that a lot of folks in this uh, situation have no other opportunities Nobody's ever tells them, hey, listen, you study hard, you can go to Harvard. They don't. They literally don't know that. Mm-hmm. All they know is, okay, I knew this guy from around the way and that guy from uh, the corner, and they're the ones who are rich and everybody else is suffering, right? So <coughs> I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I'm going to get involved in the local industry. And he does it at whatever young age that he does. Boom, life sentence. But he didn't create the perverted system. He didn't create the lack of opportunity in his situation. Now... Does that excuse him? No. No, okay. Uh, does that mean he should get a life sentence? Well, that's a different question, isn't it? it? Yes, and he absolutely shouldn't get a life sentence. And by the way, let me correct myself. So this reform would actually help people who haven't been given a mandatory minimum. If you've been given a mandatory minimum, you're screwed. If your drug offense was your third strike, you're still screwed. This isn't going to do anything for your sentence. But this reform was meant for people who might have... Ge- been given ridiculous sentences by judges, and you know the reform is supposed to help them out and give them a, a lesser sentence or commute their sentence altogether. But it's ridiculous that it doesn't affect mandatory minimums because that's the biggest issue. Yeah. So now a lot of people get on Obama, I think rightfully so, that his commutations that people are hyping up are actually relatively small number uh, and almost never does a pardon. And so historically, it's not like he's a president who's been very merciful. Uh, he's picking up steam in that direction, thank God. But you got to give credit where credit is due. This part of the law is very important and does affect a lot of people. So you got to then recognize that he did this well.
you've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, support the bipartisan movement, Justice Reform Now. One out of every 100 Americans is behind bars. The U.S. spends $80 billion a year on incarceration. 70 million Americans have a criminal record. And in too many neighborhoods, young people of color are more likely to go to prison than college. Over the course of this year, those stats straight out of Cut 50's campaign supporting bipartisan criminal justice reform have led to an unlikely alliance of traditional ideological adversaries like the ACLU and Koch Industries. With the left and the right backing a reduction in the inmate population, legislation has actually been introduced in the House and Senate. As reported on NPR, Mike Maurer, executive director of the Sentencing Project, is behind the bill because, quote, the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act is the most substantial criminal justice reform legislation introduced since the inception of the Tough on Crime movement and is the best indication we have that those days are over, unquote. Families Against Mandatory Minimums is also supporting the legislation. President Julie Stewart acknowledges that it isn't perfect, but says, quote, it is a substantial improvement over the status quo and will fix some of the worst injustices. The House bill, the Safe Justice Act, and the Senate bill, the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act, propose system-wide reforms to reduce overcriminalization, enhance rehabilitation, support individuals rebuilding after prison terms, reform federal prison sentencing, and reduce automatic and harsh punishments like three strikes laws. Visit justicereformnow.org to sign the Cut 50 petition, which is approaching 200,000 signatures. Turns out, criminal justice reform is also popular with celebrity activists and the general public. You can also join in demanding that Congress take action to roll back the incarceration industry in America by following hashtag justicereformnow and hashtag cut50. We already know this Congress is usually loath to do anything besides push budget deadlines and investigate Planned Parenthood, so let's make sure they can hear us loud and clear on this one. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If reducing the prison population in an effort to bring some justice to our criminal justice system matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about justice reform now via social media so that others in your network can add their voices too. Activism. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption by a lawyer who's been called America's Nelson Mandela by Desmond Tutu. For more than 30 years, Brian Stevenson, a lawyer in Alabama, has been working on death row, trying to stop executions. The story of Walter McMillian, one of his clients, an African-American wrongly accused of a notorious murder, is the backbone of the book, which moves between memoir, stories of condemned men, and a more general argument about why the US has the highest incarceration rate in the world. When we met... 
and began by asking him if the smell and feel of death row had changed over the thirty years he's been visiting. You know, I think it's become uh, more oppressive. There's a wariness that develops over time because you know it's associated with that space. The first time I went, I just had no expectation of what I would find there. And I think, knowing what I know now, which is that there's a community of of people who are full of compassion and humanity, who are striving to get to a place of redemption and recovery, and knowing the challenges that we face to help them get there, it's a it's a dreadful place. Uh, people are locked down 23 hours a day. Uh, the pr- prisons in the United States are much more oppressive today than they were 30 years ago because the conditions and the overcrowding has become so bad. We went from 300,000 people in jails and prisons in 1972 to 2.3 million people today without creating an infrastructure to support that. And that stresses the guards. Uh, and that stresses the the administration, and that creates challenges, even for the condemned. Uh, we've had more executions since the first time I've went, uh, and that has also added to the sense of strain and burden and anguish uh, that the men and women have to deal with. And so it's, it's, it's every bit as difficult and challenging to go to death row today uh, than it was when I first went there. And you never get immured to it. You really don't. You really don't. I... Uh, just one relief for a man who'd been on death row for 30 years for a crime he didn't commit. And when I would go, I would just talk with him, and, and we were all both so frustrated that we couldn't get the courts to do the right thing. And every time I left, I had just a sense of despair because I wanted him to come with me, knowing that he shouldn't be there. And that feeling really has never left, the sense that uh, you're, you're, you're walking away from people who are going to suffer more when you're gone uh, than when you were there. Uh, and I think the indifference to the plight of condemned people has also made the experience of going there much, much worse. Can you explain it, the indifference? Yeah, I think in the 70s and 80s there was this attention uh, to the death penalty because it was a relatively new phenomenon in the modern era. Uh, and then I think we just got inured to the reality that we execute people. And unless something went catastrophically wrong, uh, the person didn't die when they were injected or they caught on fire during the electrocution, these executions took place. They became sort of normalized in a way that I found really, really disruptive. You connect the lynching of African Americans with what one might call the dispersal of those lynching emotions into the legal system. You have a deep belief about that, don't you? I I really do. I think the United States has never confronted its history of racial inequality. I think that we are still burdened by that history. I think we have been infected with this narrative of racial difference that began during the era of slavery. And we've never talked about it, and because we've never talked about it... You always talk about it, but you never talk about (laughs) it. Yes, and I think the way we talk about it, though, is designed to kind of immunize us from dealing with the real challenges. So... The great evil of American slavery for me was not uh, forced labor. It was not involuntary servitude because we ended that. And you can celebrate that and you can talk about that. But the great evil for me was this narrative of racial difference, the ideology of white supremacy. Uh, We wanted our slave owners to feel Christian and moral and just while they owned other human beings. And so we created this mythology about the differences between people who are black and white. And our 13th Amendment does not address that. And because it didn't address the that, the 13th Amendment is, is the constitutional amendment that prohibits slavery in the, in the United States. Uh, and, and it was passed in 1865, and I don't believe that that ended slavery. I don't think slavery ended in 1865. I think it just evolved. Because that narrative of racial difference, that ideology of white supremacy, still had to be maintained. And we maintained it through terrorism and well, violence and lynching. 
I interviewed Claudia Rankin, uh, mm, uh, uh, sure. you know her, yes. her book called Sit-In, and she used the same phrase, which is white supremacy. And I pushed her, and I think I pushed her near enough to saying that she thought it was still there. I think so. I mean, you, you know, you get acculturated uh, believing these things that get reinforced by what you see. So if you grew up in the early part of the 20th century, you didn't see people of color in your schools. You didn't see them as doctors and lawyers. You didn't see, you saw them in the subordinate status. Uh, you saw them being uh, excluded and marginalized. You didn't see them voting because they were denied that right. And that consciousness emerges and evolves. And lynching was the way in which we reinforced that ideology. And then we got into the civil rights era, and even the way we talk about civil rights, in my judgment, doesn't get to the harsh truth of segregation. We like to celebrate Dr. King and Ms. Parks, and we talk really gloriously about how things have changed, but we haven't talked about the damage that was done by subjecting people of color to decades of humiliation. Okay. It's a very eloquent account of mm. what's wrong. Mm. It's always easier, and I don't mean this in any dismissive way, easier to tell us what's wrong. How do you move for is to ought, yes. as the philosophers say? Yeah, well, I think we need to commit ourselves to transitional justice. We need truth and reconciliation in America. Just as much as in South Africa. Just as much as in South Africa. Just as much as in Rwanda. Just as much as in Germany. You go to Germany, you go to Berlin, you can't go 100 meters without seeing a marker or a stone that marks the space where a Jewish family was abducted and taken to the camps. The Germans want you to go to the concentration camps and reflect soberly on the history of the Holocaust. We do the opposite. We don't want you talking about lynching. We don't want you talking about the injuries and the continuing struggles created by segregation. We don't want people talking about slavery. We want them talking about being in a post-racial America. And that consciousness is what leaves us vulnerable to what I think of as this presumption of dangerousness and guilt that gets assigned to people of color that has led to these huge disparities in who gets sentenced to death and who gets executed, who gets put in prison and who doesn't, who gets shot and killed by police officers. Which is still happening. How... So a transitional period mm -hmm. of truth and reconciliation. It's very hard because whenever I speak to Americans, and even when I read your book, mm. there's an exceptionalism mm -hmm. about America. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the city of God on the hill. <laughs> it's a really, I can't, I don't know how you get over that. Well, I think we have to confront people with the ugly realities. I mean, we've got a project where we're trying to put markers and monuments at the spaces where the slave trade was most active. I want to put markers and monuments at the places where lynchings took place. I want to make visible this history of abuse and shame and degradation. We do uh, pride great in America. We're probably the best country in the world when it comes to greatness, and we have wonderful songs. We have terrific habits and traditions. What we don't do very well is shame. And until you learn to deal with your shame, with your mistakes, with your failings, you can never really be fully evolved. And that's the challenge that we face as a society. It's what we face all over the world. Okay, so as I listen to you, part of me wonders if you should have gone into politics <laughs> and not gone into law. You know, I think democracy and politics are wonderful. We need great leaders, but they are inherently compromising. Uh, most elected leaders can't talk about truth and reconciliation. They can't talk about shame. Shame is not a political platform that's going to get you elected. And I don't begrudge the people who are in politics. I just believe someone has to insist on something more truthful, more transformational. The great changes that have taken place in American society through the civil rights era, through the anti-lynching era, even through the abolitionist era, required people on the outside of the political process pushing the majority to do something that they didn't want to do. And so you're a vanguardist. I think in a very odd way, you're not a Leninist. I would never <laughs> accuse any American of being a Leninist. But... 
it, there's a, one of the things that's very striking in yeah, the book yeah. is your religious mm-hmm, faith. Mm-hmm. And the disciple and the leader, and I'm not saying you're confusing yourself with Jesus, but that sense is very profound in you, isn't it? It is. I, I mean, I definitely was taught you have to believe things you haven't seen. Uh, my grandmother was the daughter of people who were enslaved. Her father learned to read at a time when it was illegal, dangerous to learn how to read, but he did it. He taught her the power of that. She wanted me to experience that, to know that. And she would say, look, if you're, if my father can survive slavery and I could survive terrorism and lynching, and your parents can survive segregation, you can survive what comes at you. And this idea uh, that you might have to climb up the rough side of the mountain to get where you're going, but you must climb, was something that uh, the What are the costs of that? Because there's a very interesting moment in the book, and forgive me, but I think you misread Thomas Merton. (laughs) Because you you quote Merton saying, we are a body of broken bones, but that's because of original sin. (laughs) There's a very interesting moment when you say, you know, I can't have done all the things I've done, confronted this, been defeated by that, without being broken. I think it's true that when you get intimate uh, with suffering, and inequality and abuse, you should give away any notion that you can do that comfortably, that you can do that safely and easily, uh, that you can have your peace unchallenged. I think what confronting injustice requires is a willingness to be broken by the ugliness of inequality. See, you've got a lovely way of describing this generally. Yeah. Now... I want this more personal because, <laughs> not that I want any confession because sure. that's not my business, yeah, but yeah. you've done something at one level very weird over yeah. the last 30 yeah. years. <laughs> you've kind of kept going back and going back to places most of us would run away from, and you're right, yeah. it's difficult and it's painful yeah. and the dreams must be bad a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, I don't, you know, I, listen, I, I've had to shed a lot of tears. You go into places where you see things that literally break your heart and, and that just trouble you for a long time and I've seen people crushed who shouldn't be crushed and I've seen humanity denied to people who are very human and I can't lie about the consequence of that but I've also seen the wrongly condemned exonerated. I've seen truth crush to earth rise again. I've seen uh, that moral arc of the universe bend toward justice. You know, I, you write a group in the church and used to say, Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I never understood that until I represented Death Row Prisoner, who we were able to free from Death Row. That's when it began to make sense to me. Could and you have done this without faith? Oh, yeah. I don't. You could have done. Well, I, I, I don't know what, I mean, you know, I, my worldview has been shaped by uh, all of these barriers. You know, nobody in my family had gone to college. I started my education in a colored school. We've always needed people. Was it called a colored school? It was. It was the colored school in that community. And lawyers came in and made them open up the public school <laughs> uh, so that I could attend that. And so I've always needed uh, to believe things I haven't seen. And and that's sort of what faith is about. Uh, but I don't say to people, you can only do this work if you think like I think. Uh, I believe anybody with a heart... Uh, committed to change and reform and justice can make a difference. Have there only been moments when you thought, just stop this, Brian. Yeah, just yeah. stop it. This is, <laughs> I don't get a life, you know. <laughs> I only get one, or maybe I get one afterwards, but this is... No, th- there have been those moments where the enormity of the grief has made me question whether this is sensible. But I've always been able... Uh, to get past that by thinking about what people have done before me. As hard as my days have been, as hard as my challenge has been, I've never had to say, my head is bloodied but not bowed. 
like the people who were trying to do what I was doing 50 years ago. And the fact that they had to do so much with so much less reinforces my sense that I can do more. One of the extraordinary things in America is people have to watch executions. Mm. They're kind of small. Have you watched them? I have, yes. And uh, You say it, that with more equanimity I could probably manage. Well, it's surreal. I, I think that, um, you know, it's just so unconscionable to take an otherwise human being and to strap them down and to kill them and think that we're accomplishing justice. And I think for me the ugliest part of the execution process is not even that moment of death, uh, but it's what happens before that. It's the way in which I describe one of, back in the old, old days, we, we executed people by the electric chair, and the guards would have to come in and shave the hair off the condemned person's body. And I've watched these guards do that, and you could tell they're so ashamed. There's nothing else they would, they would, they would rather do than that, that. I mean, they would just, they were desperate to not be in that situation. And when they walked away, they knew they had done something wrong. And then to see them go through this protocol, and it, it's just the, it's just that it demeans and damages everyone. You know, I, I talk about this. I had a client who said to me, you know, Brian, it's been such a strange day. He said when he woke up that morning, the guards came to him and said, what do you want for breakfast? And at midday, they said, what do you want for lunch? And he said, all day long, they kept saying, what can I do to help you? And I never will forget him saying to me in those last minutes, he said, Brian, it's been so strange. More people have said, what can I do to help you in the last 14 hours of my life than they ever did in the first 19 years of my life. And I was standing there thinking, yeah, where were they when you were three and your mother had died? And where were they when you were seven and you were experimenting with drugs? Where were they when you came back from Vietnam, traumatized and disabled? And it's that kind of tension that makes these executions so uh, perverse. Uh, They're largely executions in your part of the world, in the southern states. That's right. Do you think, you know, there's been, after the shootings in Carolina, in the church, Mm -hmm. there's been the demolition of the confederate flag mm-hmm. do you think it's just 50 years too late well i no i don't think it's too late i think it's unfortunate that it has taken so much to get these people to start thinking more honestly about these icons and what they represent and i also hope that we don't stop with that we still have well that's what i was really going to ask yeah. you because take a flag down it's you know it's hard for the people but actually it's easy it's very easy and uh there's a whole landscape in my judgment that has to change in my state of alabama we still make confederate memorial day a state holiday uh, jefferson davis who was the president of the confederacy his birthday is a state holiday it's like making a holiday after adolf hitler or someone who tried to disrupt a society and yet we do it without thinking what the implications of that are and so I think we've got to have a whole conversation about this history that we've just glossed past. We should be ashamed of slavery, and we haven't really expressed that. We should be ashamed of lynching. We should be ashamed of the decades that went by denying people of color the right to vote. We should be ashamed of the way we have dealt with the native population and the genocide we perpetrated. And that shame isn't designed to make us feel bad. It's designed to make us do better. Hi, Jay. I'm calling again about giving advice. If you're going to give actual advice, guidance, or recommendations towards future action, I have just a couple more thoughts. Like I said in my previous call, unsolicited advice usually results in resistance. 
So just give permission. If someone's struggling with a challenge, you can ask what they've tried and what kind of help would be useful. What information or resources would be useful. You can tell them if you've had experience with this particular issue or if you know someone else who's had experience and you can ask if they want to hear what's worked for others or if they want some resources that have helped others. You really can help someone by just asking them what would be helpful for them. This gets them thinking about reaching out and it helps them clarify their own needs. And then if they're open and they give you permission for you to give them advice, they'll be more open to what you have to share. That's it. Thanks again. Doing great work. Keep it up. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Allison from Boulder, Colorado. I am calling in response to Brad from Dallas. I was a 19-year-old goth in the Denver area when Columbine happened, so I understand about the trench coat thing and being viewed prejudicially um, because of the trench coats and because of the way you dress. However, there is, I understand also from being female and from being a member of the LGBT community and also having a disability, that there is a big difference between um, being viewed prejudicially because of the way you dress and being discriminated against because of something like your gender or your race or your heritage or uh, your religion that especially if your religion is a hereditary religion like Judaism, then it's on a different level. It's basically something that you, you know, you can take off the trench coat. You can't take off having Middle Eastern heritage. You can't take off being female. You can't take off being African-American. So anyways, if you would like to talk to me about this or respond or anything, uh, you can get my contact information from Jay. Also, Jay, great job, and thanks for the show, and I agree with Brad's other points. So, all right, thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Kolbusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, jay at bestofleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. So hopefully you heard the last segment in which Brian Stevenson the author of Just Mercy, was being interviewed. uh, Because I got to say, I read his book yesterday, and holy shit, do I have a book recommendation for you. And you may think that I read his book in preparation for today's episode, but that is not how it worked out. I read his book and then thought, well, holy shit, I guess I know what tomorrow's episode is going to be about. He is a lawyer who has dedicated his life, basically, to doing pro bono work for the most vulnerable people who have been the most fucked over by our justice system. He just does it with the backing of his nonprofit organization, so he gets outside funding, which he then uses to hire a staff to go out and do work for people who are you know, usually on death row, but not always, often poor, often of color, but not always – and sometimes children getting uh, swept up into the system, people uh, who are 
you know, theoretically going to be in prison till they die. Uh, many people often who are actually innocent of the crimes they were convicted of and on and on. And so his book basically tells many, many of these sort of vignettes of stories, uh, as well as one major story that kind of threads its way through the entire book. So you, you get, you know, one real big, complicated, interesting story uh, throughout with vignettes from, you know, dozens more. And, uh, you know, I welled up about to cry. I can't remember if it was four or five times uh, while reading this book. And And the thing is, like, when you read a book like this and it's full of injustice and people being crushed by the system and people being either wrongly put on death row or, you know, just not being able to get the justice that they deserve, you'd think that the things that, you know, made me emotional were, you know, one tragic event after another. And for whatever reason, that's not how I'm wired. I, you know, it's not like I'm unaffected by sad stories. I certainly am. But the thing that actually makes me cry is usually happy stuff. And so amazingly, in this book, full of injustice, there were instances of hope and bravery and redemption and just, you know, uh, uh, amazing insights and, uh, you know, and touching anecdotes that we'll get to you as well. So I was going to recommend it anyways, but I started going through his uh, his organization and uh, look, just looking at their Twitter feed, just to see what they've been up to recently. And that's when I found that his book just won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, which is, as they have on their masthead, the first and only annual U.S. literary award recognizing the power of the written word to promote peace. Obviously, I hadn't heard of it winning this award until after I'd finished reading it, but I can't say I'm at all surprised. I, I totally understand why it deserved it. So seriously, run, don't walk to find yourself a copy of this book, read it, enjoy it, and pass it on. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained